Like most other small towns in New England, the one where I live has gone through many changes. It's seen its share of development, growth, and the subsequent lost and forgotten history. Vast open space that was once farmland has been encroached upon by economic developments of every kind. Simple systems of dirt roads have become a part of major highways that attract industrial parks, franchise chains, and new home projects. This is simply a natural part of progress, but for me, its inevitability is hard to accept. My eye constantly looks for how the land once was, and when I studied a map of the town in which I live, I noticed something very odd. It's this strange road which intersects with mine. Looking closely, I could see that it comes to an end, and then in about a quarter mile or so, it begins again. The middle of it is missing, at least it is on the map. Just a half a mile from my front door, there exists an old forgotten cart path, and the last time it appears on any map is in 1870. It is now the discarded segment of a rugged, narrow lane sandwiched in between two new residential developments. Modern cartographers must have decided that if you don't drive your car on it, then it doesn't exist. These residential bookends have somehow polluted that landscape with their leveled, paved streets and predictably bland architecture. The intervening cart path, however, as it did from its beginning, rises, falls, and twists with the topography, revealing jagged rock ledge that creates an uneven trail. Frequently traveled from colonial times up until the early 1900s, it is unpassable by any of today's vehicles. Only the methods of transport used during that time, such as animal-drawn carts and wagons, could cross this terrain, and not always so easily. Its only use today is as a cut-through for children riding their bikes, or daily dog walkers from the abridged communities. Between these busy and unassuming present-day people lies a comparatively and virtually undisturbed slice of the past, a sort of portal that beckons us backwards in time. On this old by-road, just under our footsteps has been a fascinating tale of the Revolutionary War and some of the not-so-celebrated individuals who fought in it. A mere several inches under this very path, a misplaced relic has been sitting, cold and dark, for over 200 years. There it has silently reposed, while generation after generation has lived blindly above it. That is, until now. Because, as chance would have it, I too ambled over its resting spot. And not by chance, I had a metal detector in my hand. And with it, I brought the lost to the light. This is Life Underground, and I'm Dan Tebow. This is a story of a vanished possession, where it came from, who may have lost it, and what finding it again can tell us about our world today. My story will not match any told by H.G. Wells, and my metal detector is a humble piece of technology, but for me, it's the next best thing to a time machine. On this day, as I meandered slowly along this old forgotten cart path, swinging my coil gently from side to side, both clock and calendar began abruptly racing backwards. A strong, familiar signal reported from the detector, indicating a desirable target, with its depth reading as just below the surface. With very little prodding of my hand trowel, 
a dark, round object was unbound from the earth. I find trash quite often, much more than I find my precious old relics, and I wasn't sure if this was just another washer or discarded metal slag of some kind. Gently brushing away the dirt, I could begin to make out that it was a coin. An old coin. The face had a stylized eagle with splayed feathers and its talons open and ready to seize. Even more remarkable was the clear numeral 17 in the lower left portion and two barely distinguishable numerals on the right. But the 17 told me the century, and this was all I needed to know. A find like this is what I dream of. It's the source of my passion. And as I stood there with it in my hand, an exhilarating feeling of triumph was mixed with an awe of mystery and chance. When I got back home to properly clean and research the coin, my heart soared to the realization that it was minted in 1758 by the then Prussian Empire. On the reverse side was the legend 12 Heller Riegstadt, the coin's worth, and below this Aachen, the region of Prussia it was from. It was the currency of the German states and used in trade throughout Europe. In 1758, when the coin was struck, our nation had not yet been born, although the foundations for revolt were being formed by the British economic policies that constrained wealthy colonial landowners. It would take almost 20 more years for this fledgling aristocracy to build its case, but eventually many landless commoners also became supporters of the revolution. Like the main character of Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle, they were an alienated kinfolk of the British Empire who were soon to awake from the long sleep of tyranny, rising to newfound freedoms and responsibilities. How the coin came to rest for so long on this abandoned stretch of track is to me an intriguing mystery. Coins of all types found their way to this part of the world through trade. They were also carried over by immigrants. It could also be imagined that it came by another means far more exciting. Over 10,000 Prussian nationals came to our shores virtually all at once in the year 1776. As we prepared for noble revolution, England prepared for stubborn rebellion. And with their armies stretched thin across the empire's global colonies, the British would require support troops in America, and they found them in the form of Prussian mercenary soldiers. In fact, this was one of the formal objections made against King George in the Declaration of Independence, which I quote. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. One of these foreign mercenaries was George Zacharias Hatchtat. In 1754, four years prior to the coin's mint date, Hatchtat was born in the German state of Hesse Kassel. In 1761, at the age of seven, and by decree of the Landgrave Frederick II, he was registered for military duty. When he turned 15, he reported to his first training camp. Ultimately, he was required to serve in the military for as long as he remained strong enough to do so. The economy of all the German states was largely based on the leasing of armed forces to other European countries to aid in their war efforts. 
It mattered little which country and for what cause. So prolific was the custom that in some engagements, Germans fought against other Germans as each side of the conflict had similar contracts. At the age of 26, George headed to the colonies as a private in the Jagger Corps, a somewhat better paid class of soldier in comparison to the regular infantry. Jagger means hunter, and they often led reconnaissance missions or engaged in skirmishes that screened out the potential threat of surprise attack. Having fought in almost every major battle, large numbers of Hessians were taken as prisoner of war, and many were confined at a POW camp in Rutland, Massachusetts, only a few miles from our lost coin. In a twist of fate, George found himself captive here in 1777. Some of the Hessians imprisoned here died of wounds or sickness, and others were involved in prisoner exchange arrangements. Ironically, this was not Hatchstadt's fate. This is a man who came to this land to fight against the people who occupied it, to follow the dictates of foreign ideals and prescribe warfare with full determination. He came willing to kill and ready to be killed, and not through the dictates of his own conscience, but as a result of political circumstances and a severely limited freedom. Regardless, he did intend on bloodshed until captured and offered an attractive alternative. The Hessians, as they were called, were known to be highly skilled and ruthless fighters. Still, throughout the war, Congress offered any Hessian who would desert and take an oath of allegiance a parcel of land, one cow, two pigs, and full citizenship to this new and vibrant country. Washington had leaflets produced, and spies successfully would sneak them into Hessian camps, pronouncing that they take advantage of this offer. Approximately 3,000 Hessians did just that. Hesse Castle had a long-standing agricultural society, and Hessian soldiers like George immediately saw the opportunities in this fresh new place. With fertile soils and wide tracts of unclaimed acreage, it differed dramatically to his homeland, oversettled and war-torn for two centuries. Once in America, he and his fellow soldiers also found a peaceable and flourishing German-American community of almost 200,000 people up and down the East Coast. Hessians were not only professional soldiers, they were also tradesmen with expertise in varied crafts. Among a list of 153 who signed the Oath of Allegiance in the state of Pennsylvania between 1777 and 1789, some declared their occupations as shoemaker, blacksmith, brewer, weaver, baker, wheelwright, and even schoolmaster. Ultimately, they were good men and comrades with a matching work ethic, and George Washington himself forgave them their circumstances. Broadside posters were by and large the public media of the day, and through them he implored the citizenry to tolerate the Hessians because they came here against their will. Perhaps reflection would lead us to believe that our country now is too old and settled for such noble sentiments. We have no room left, both in a figurative and literal sense, to assimilate the castouts of the world, let alone our enemies. After his capture in 1777, George deserted from the POW camp in Rutland and took an oath of allegiance. I quote an old document for the exact words he spoke and signed. I, George Hatchthat, do swear that I renounce and refuse 
all allegiance to George III, King of Great Britain, his heirs and successors, and that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts as a free and independent state, and that I will not at any time do or cause to be done any matter or thing that will be prejudicial or injurious to the freedom and independence thereof, as declared by Congress, that I will discover and make known to some one justice of the peace of this state all treasons or traitorous conspiracies which I now know or hereafter shall know to be formed against this or any of the United States of America. Once vilified in the Declaration of Independence as a brutal foreign mercenary, with these words he had now become part of this emerging nation, swearing to defend it. Soon after, he met and married a local woman named Beulah Martin and settled in nearby Peterson. One year later, they carved a farm out of the open land and began having children. Thomas Hatchstadt was born in 1778, followed shortly by George Jr. and then Charles. The eldest Hatchstadt, Thomas, was married to Militia Hickson on January 23, 1801 in Peterson, and they had six children. The tree branches from here and can be traced well into the late 1900s. George Hadstadt is a part of who we are as a nation. He has just as much a share of this country's formation as all the colonial settlers from the various European nations, and to disregard this fact belies our own heritage of assimilating the masses of people who seek a better life through extreme sacrifice, hard work, and belief in redemption and in this case, even one of our enemies. This family's long legacy, now intertwined with so many others, is amazing when you consider its extraordinary beginning. George and Beulah's descendants live among us to this day. They are possibly people we know and live with side by side. Our children may go to school with them, and they may even live in that newly created housing development, totally unaware of the origins and struggles of their ancestry. But the past is only gone in as much as we allow it to be. All of us, by chance, loses something. A coin, a memory, or a story from our past. And it may sink into oblivion. But it need not remain there forever. And what it once characterized can be re-examined and reconciled to the fluctuating values of our culture and society. Maybe a thing must lie undisturbed in the earth for a long time before all the elements of its being can tell us why it existed in the first place, and why, too, all these years later, we should hear what it might have to say to us. I'm Dan Tebow, and I created this podcast in the spirit of discovery and preservation. If you liked it, please subscribe, download, rate, and review. The old cart path is currently undergoing yet more construction of new homes, and the area where I found the 1758 Heller Rikstadt will soon be leveled and paved. I am blessed to have chanced upon and saved this important piece of our cultural heritage. You will find an image of this coin on my Facebook page. The URL is fb.me forward slash Life Underground Podcast. Look for more episodes soon on Life Underground. 
May you bring the lost to the light.